these are your introduce themselves and get the podcast started. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Vane Gomez. I use she, her, and they, them pronouns. And I am Forrest's co-director this year. So I help oversee a group of 14 interns. Um, we do a lot of feminist engagement work on campus. And I've been um, in the community organizing part of Raza Studies and now part of the WGRC for, I want to say, almost 10 years. Hello, my name is Kala, or my name is Ndekela, but I go by Kala. And I am the graduate assistant for FORCE, and I work in the WGRC as well with Bonnie. And I've worked in the WGRC most of my time in Tucson. I'm actually, I was born in Zambia, and then we moved to Phoenix, and so I'm not a Tucson local necessarily. But I really love it, and I am also a graduate student in the College of Public Health. So a lot of my feminist work is usually health-minded, and kind of centers around global perspectives of health. Um, so before I started, I wanted to thank the U of A Force and the Women's Gender and Resource Center, specifically Mariah and Kim for inviting me here. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Force itself. Force stands for Feminists Organized to Resist, Create, and Empower, and it's dedicated to creating a feminist space and presence on campus. And so I'm very honored today to have my two very special guests. Uh, I'll give a little bit more background about Kala. She is a black feminist graduate student in the College of Public Health, studying family and child health with a global emphasis. Her activism and research is rooted in gender-based violence. And she would like to be a doctor who can act as reproductive justice advocate specifically for survivors of violence, and particularly for black and brown folks in the future. Here I have Vane, who is a queer Latinx student and is co-director of FORCE. Her connection to social justice began when she was 13 through the lens of the Raza Studies movement, and since then has expanded to intersectional passion areas, such as amplifying community and legislative justice for undocumented student rights, survivor advocacy, and transformative education. An important part of her identity is her role as a parental figure in her home, which lends to her awareness and commitment to honoring matriarchs and femme-identifying people in home spaces and institutions. So thank you all both again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. The themes that we're going to be exploring today are centering around power, matriarchs, feminism, and identity. We're going to be analyzing two of Rocky Rivera's songs, Pussy Kills and Brown Babies. And I hope that through this discussion, we can also talk about how Kala and Vane's individual narratives also intertwine with these, the themes and the songs that we're going to be talking about today. So if you could play the clip from Pussy Kills. Rocky Rivera raps, and even if they had a billion dollars, I would never give the pussy up to a misogynistic rapper. And I'm reminded of the refrain, the revolution starts at home. I've noticed, especially in these professionalized, quote-unquote, social justice spaces, people aren't really doing the work interpersonally to live out their values, right? Like, like people, 
people have the vocabulary, but they're not walking the walk. And so I wanted to ask you all, how do you try and walk the walk and, and live out your values in your everyday life? <laughs> <laughs> Hello. So I know for me, a lot of my activism started kind of in these like professionalized campus environments. And so it's always kind of just been like me. I lived in Chandler, Arizona, and that's as white as it can get. <laughs> and so like... Chandler, Arizona in the audience, actually. Oh, yeah, so you know. I <laughs> do. And so I also went to like a predominantly Mormon school, very religious. And so for me, it's always kind of been taking the revolution, making it home for me has always kind of been, it's always felt like walking against the grain. Yeah, it's always kind of felt like walking against the grain whenever I step out of my like, out of my work environment. Going out into just like my general spaces has always felt like me fighting against who I live with, fighting against people in the dorms because I lived in also the U of A still like a predominantly white campus and the dorm I lived in had a lot of white people. And so I think with that, one thing I learned is just I obviously want to survive. I want to make money and money is a big part of survival, especially when you grew up not having much. But one thing to always remember is that I don't want to be a, a capitalist asshole, my, my language. <laughs> and so as I do more, like me wanting to be a doctor, the profession I want to do, which is gynecology, is inherently rooted in oppression, especially of black women and slave bodies. And so I guess for me, like what that means to put it short instead of rambling. No, you're is, doing great. <laughs> it's always kind of just been hard as soon as I step away from the decision-making table. But one thing is always just like continuing fighting and it just got easier and easier as I kept going along with it and kind of learning that I don't have to sell my soul in order to make concrete change. And even though I've been forced to work within the system, doesn't mean I can't dismantle it as well. Even from the inside, even from the outside, doesn't mean I, it takes away my power. But one thing to always remember is where I come from from and taking those experiences wherever I am remembering people who've gotten me here and then just never forgetting again where I come from which is from Zambia low-income country thinking of even just from a predominantly white area when I moved here and just kind of putting those two pieces of me together is the pieces of me that have fought the most I guess and so that's kind of what I thought of a bit <laughs> thank you for sharing thank you Vanya, do you want to go next? Yeah. So I started my work very, very young. And I started my work not because of it was a hobby for me. Mm -hmm. One thing that activism has never been was a choice. It was mm -hmm. kind of something I had to do. Right. And it was something I always was taught, this is what you have to do. Mm -hmm. And being 13 years old in the middle of one of the biggest traumas I think I've ever had to face, which was the ethnic studies ban, HB 2281, which took away primarily Mexican-American studies classes, I was kind of left without getting an opportunity to learn what theory really was or to learn what the vocabulary was, to learn terms or dates or people. So for a long time, my activism was praxis based. I did not understand concept. I mean, I understood concept and theory, but I didn't know there was a name to that stuff. Mm -hmm. So most of my young adult life has been based on what I learned to do in the ground, what I learned to do with grassroots organizations. And going into an institution, sometimes you have to let go of those spaces and I think right. being exposed to new organizations as well opened my eyes and helped me see that not every organization was perfect and in fact not all of them actually embedded their own proxies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think a lot of the work does lie what I decide to interact with in day-to-day -day spaces mm -hmm. so I take a lot of like feminist theory classes now like yeah. in the institution 
And if you're not fighting in that class, like, what are you doing? <laughs> if you're not, I feel like there's a time and place to call people out, but I'm definitely not afraid to call a white person out for acting out. Right, right. Uh, it's also about, like, not being afraid to call out your own community, mm-hmm. um, especially Latinx spaces, like, the, the anti-blackness runs rampant, yeah. like, homophobia runs rampant, right. transphobia, mm-hmm. and you have to really build systems within yourself to learn how to call that shit out. Yeah. I don't know if I can say that. You can, I swear <laughs> okay. all the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so kind of, to build on this idea that you're just talking about of having a feminist movement that actually is inclusive of all women, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was thinking about today's interview was the women's marches and the women who planned them and how they've been criticized for wearing pink pussy hats and really centering genitals in the, the quest for women's liberation. And so at the same time, reproductive ability of people with vaginas is very tightly regulated. You know, as Rocky says in her songs, politicians pass laws with my pussy on their mind. So for me, I wanted to ask you all how we can both celebrate that pussy kills and also ensure an intersectional and trans-inclusive movements. Okay. I'm asking yeah. the hard questions. <laughs> um, I think thinking about it in small scale in regards to this song in particular, Mm -hmm. I kind of had the same question when I first listened to it. I asked myself, how can we sing this and take up space with these types of lyrics, but Mm -hmm. also not take away space? And what I took away from it was that this is Rocky singing or speaking to her personal narrative and her personal experience. Mm -hmm. So after really sitting down with the lyrics and getting to analyze them, I know, like, what I noticed that was, I'm assuming, very intentional was that she never speaks to everyone who has a pussy. Mm -hmm. And again, stepping away from just the song in particular and expanding to a broader audience of people who focus genitals in the movement, Mm -hmm. I think it's about learning how to call that out. And also learning when not put that labor onto other people. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I often talk about, like, oh, you need to learn how to like interrupt that. But like, mm-hmm. you also can't expect a, the only trans person in the room right. to call out transphobia. Yeah. You it's can't expect the, or you can't let the only black person in the room to call out anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. Like you have to learn how to do the work to name what that stuff is going on, even if you don't share those identities. Right. <laughs> um. And I had kind of the same mindset. We actually talked about it because I was like, I feel really weird <laughs> because it was like pussy kills. And of course, like I associate like type of language with that whole white feminist mm-hmm. pussy hat, like pussy yeah, power yeah. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I had to really think to myself, like, what does it mean for a brown woman with children to be saying pussy kills? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so one thing right. I thought about is kind of just the way the eugenics movement has yes. operated yeah. mm-hmm. and the fact that like for and again, you know that concept of like, oh, in 2042, minorities are going to be more the majority or whatever? Mm-hmm. It kind of reminded me of that concept because I feel like people are inherently afraid of us taking up more space and afraid of us taking space away from them. Mm-hmm. And so that's what it kind of reminded me of with Kills is like with her other song, Brown Babies, which we'll come to later. Yeah. She talks a lot about fertility and having children and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so like that in itself is power. And she does talk about specifically herself and her experience and her not giving the pussy up to, you know, misogynistic rappers mm-hmm. for any amount of money. And so I think it's just thinking about her path where she, like herself, comes from mm-hmm. and just why for her, her pussy is so important. 
Yeah. And it's her pussy, not pussies. Right. But like everyone has their own different relationship with their genitals in general, whether it's like full on love, trauma, a mixture of emotions, like so many things go about even period having genitals. So I think there's something really important about someone singing about it in a way that's very personal to themselves, but a way that they're being intimate with all of us and the way that they're sharing their vulnerability and talking about it because it's really really difficult to talk about anything also vaginal related in general yeah and yeah so kind of the same concept is where i kind of put it together in my head was just the fact that she's talking about herself Mm -hmm. and i know for me i can relate to it but also acknowledging the fact that not everyone can Mm -hmm. and so kind of thinking about there's a different level of inclusion and so the song's kind of really complicated for me personally but i think just thinking about how she views herself as so powerful in that song i think that kind of brings up that badassery for me yeah yeah i appreciate that i i was i had thinking along the same vein of the importance of i statements of yeah. talking about your own experience as a woman and having that be powerful and stand in that mm-hmm. power but really noticing that you are talking about your own personal experience and you bring your own privileges to that that you also need to be analyzing all the time yeah mm-hmm. so i appreciate you all <laughs> So now we could play the clip from Brown Babies, the next song that we'll be talking about. It's a dramatic pause. <laughs> I was like listening to this on repeat. I know, <laughs> I know, it's a beautiful song. I'm a brown skin lady with a brown skin baby and I keep making more. I keep making more. I'm a brown skin lady with a brown skin baby and I keep making more. I'll keep making more. I'm a brown skin lady with a brown skin baby and I keep making more. I'll keep making more. I'm a brown skin lady with a brown skin Great. So, and this is also kind of going, this was also responding to what you're talking about, Kala, which is that this is the importance of reproductive justice, that we need to talk about the history of sterilization of Puerto Rican, Mexican, and black women that have, that's occurred historically in the U.S. And that's necessary if you're going to have an intersectional feminist movement. And that's why I really love this song, because actually it is very powerful for a brown woman to say that she's going to keep having more and keep having more in a context where having children is is a thing that's criminalized for women of color. It's something that women of color have not, have not always had access to. So I wanted to ask you all, why is this such a revolutionary song? And if you did want to speak to some of that history that I just touched on. So I study family and child health with global emphasis. And so this song really just hit so many like, important notes for me. The first one is kind of reproductive justice and what that means. And so when I first heard, I'm a brown skin lady and I have a brown skin baby and I keep making more. It was just really awesome thinking about kind of where we came from, which is that history of sterilization and the fact yeah. that people just did not want us having more children they don't want any more of us and that was something that was really revolutionary just being like yeah i'm gonna keep making more because that's something that we're finally at a not finally at a point we still have a lot to push forward with but we're at a point where like now we're kind of more so i don't want to say we're allowed to but it's a thing where it's like it takes power to be able to not just birth a child and have a child period whether or not it's birth or otherwise but it takes a lot of power to just have a child and then being able to raise that child the way you want to with your values and she talks a lot about i want my child to be i don't want my child to kind of be raised in similar environments that i was which is like going out with a parasol not being allowed to be too dark things like that and so yeah i think that's a lot of what i got from it is just the power in black and brown matriarchs and how much shit historically black and brown matriarchs have been through 
and how much intergenerational trauma has occurred in our bloodlines and now we're here where there's people who are the combination of those experiences and now we get to have more experiences and now we get to have our own black and brown babies and we get to keep having more if we really want to and there's something about having had that historical trauma and being at a point where now I can say I want to have a million brown children um, something about that that kind of just feels powerful I think I can't put it in any better terms this song so I had a lot of different emotions with this song all of which that I enjoyed and I am enjoying unpacking so one of the first ones that I was like I am nowhere near being a mother anytime soon I'm, I'm 20 years old and I always talk to my mom who's in the audience hey <laughs> um, I always talk to her about how I like never want to be a mom and then I, I used to always just say that growing up that I would never have kids or whatever mm -hmm. and then getting to where I am now so I currently am like a student teacher mm -hmm. so I get to be around my own set of children 60 of them every day <laughs> and that's a different type of relationship to the what I imagined motherhood to be like mm -hmm. that I never thought I would get to experience and getting to live that every single day and then also see it within my own younger siblings who are also in the audience feeling that sense of <laughs> feeling that sense of motherhood especially with my the relationship that I've gotten to cultivate with my younger sister I was able to apply what this song invoked for me to our relationship I look at her and I look at my students and I look at my brother and I see so much future and I see so much like when people say kids are the future like they really are I the most smartest people I've ever met are children and so Applying that to the song was really powerful for me and really moving. Most of my students are black and brown low-income students from the south side. So. <laughs> and so growing up, what, like those students, a, a brown student from the south side in low-income schools, I was never really afforded the opportunity to get to live within my brownness. I didn't even realize that I was a brown person. Mm -hmm. All I knew was that I was antagonized for it. Mm -hmm. Even by my own family. I grew up with like a lot of colorist values and yeah. never really understanding why I wasn't allowed to go play outside or why I wasn't allowed to wear certain colors or whatever the case may be because I was the only visible brown brima in the room. And that was really, really traumatizing yeah. and it's something that I've learned to unpack now and the best way I've been able to unpack that is by giving my my students and my siblings the opportunity to be as brown as they want to be or as brown hey. as they are wow. and <laughs> and then that one piece in like the first set of lyrics in the song when she's talking about how Spaniards came and like mm -hmm. how that like fucked everything up and then talking about the way that her family would like tell her things that and reinforce those ideas of colorism was <laughs> literally same. And I don't really have any hatred or resentment towards anyone who instilled those into me because I recognize that they're also coming from other places. Because these were phrases that were coming from also brown women in my family. Mm -hmm. So I understood, I had to do a lot of work to dismantle what that meant for me and what it means for them without yeah. having any real resentment towards them. Right. And everyone's on their own decolonial journey. Exactly. Yeah. But this song made me really think about what my relationship is to my siblings and to my students, to my own mother, and what it really means to have to take care of children every single day, 24-7, 365 days of the year with no summer vacation. Right. <laughs> and what it means to be an undocumented woman that's navigating motherhood, what it means to be someone who has to deal with a majority English-speaking community but doesn't have those tools themselves, and what it means to have to also deal with 
you know, at least for me growing up in a Mexican household, what a motherhood, a mother isn't just a mother to one person. She's a mother to a husband and she's a mother to her, to her <laughs> parents. I'm throwing shade for sure. She, a mother to, to her parents, a mother to other cousins, right. to other children and other people in the family. So having to uphold all of those pieces to make sure everyone's sane is something that I thought really stood out as well in the song. So yeah. it was really, really touching. Yeah. And I totally, oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, conversation. Oh, I was going to say, when you mentioned I didn't realize I was brown until, like, all of these things kept hitting. Up until I moved to the States, I really didn't, for the longest mm-hmm. time, I was like, oh, no, I'm not black, I'm Zambian. And that's something where it's like, moving to the States just taught me a different level of what racism really is. Sorry, there's like But it's just kind of learning basically how to live as a black person in America at like a younger age was something that was really interesting because my parents didn't have to do that because they were raised back home so they didn't have that framework yeah like they didn't think of race as part of their framework whereas they still dealt with colonization but it just looks very different over there than it has in the Americas and and so moving here having to learn how to part not participate necessarily but be a black person on top of having a little brother who came here when he was 11 months so he's I call him effectively American. (laughs) And so my parents always put this, I don't want to say pressure, but I have more pressure of parenting him because Mm -hmm. I understand American culture. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of when she talks about the values she wants to instill in her children, I think about that with my little brother a lot. And when he messes things up, I always take that back onto myself. And I just kind of thought about that when you mentioned having to like learn that you were brown from different experiences Mm -hmm. and then having to kind of raise and instill your knowledge onto future children and future Mm -hmm. generations. And also what it means to raise kids because I've had to, you know, do that work also with my little brother. And I love the kid, but (laughs) I still, my own. Well, I think that's Um. a very gendered (laughs) expectation that you, that your mom would, that your parents, I should Mm -hmm. say, would expect you to play that role. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was like, you're your brother's keeper now. And I was like, right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can't move on from this topic without talking about the people who are pregnant who are in border patrol custody that's kind of what i thought about when i heard this song because the the comments that border patrol agents make to the folks that i've spoken with are actually very much tied to eugenicist ideals they are they critique the families who come here because they say that they just want to come here to the us and have a bunch of quote unquote anchor babies and the for this reason you know to be an undocumented person in the u.s and to and to assert your right to have a child is really radical and revolutionary and i do just want to hold space for the abuses that pregnant people suffer in border patrol custody because they're inhumane and horrific so i just wanted i needed to call attention to that before we could move on from this topic So to wrap, to wrap up, I wanted to play one last song, and Vine, I think you'll appreciate it <laughs> based on what we were just talking about. <laughs> so we can play it now. <laughs> so in this lyric, Rocky raps, if brown is wrong, I don't want to be right. What does this mean to you, and do you agree? Fuck yeah. (laughs) This holds a lot of weight for me, especially if I think growing up, I was always very, I just always felt very ugly, and I always 
was looking for ways to align as closely as I could to whiteness. Mm -hmm. And this started to show up in hobbies too. Oh my gosh, like, like what? Like, I became so addicted to Starbucks. And I still <laughs> am, but I'm better at it. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> and I had a lot of interests that weren't even really interests. They were just, this is what has been showed to me or taught that this means whiteness which means impossible beauty standards that I'm literally uh, never gonna have mm -hmm. so having to do the work to dismantle that and a lot of that came from family values and then like what was taught in school and like what was just you know being said on the streets it's what I grew up around mm -hmm. often and so having to unlearn that unfortunately but also fortunately came from the work of other black and brown women mm -hmm. and everything that I learned about intersectionality and diversity and, and literally only came from black and brown women right. who looked like me or who shared the same struggle with mm -hmm. me yeah. and so it wasn't until I found myself in community with black and brown women and femmes that I realized I never want to sh be anything else besides brown yeah there's so much if there's so much pride to be had in it mm -hmm. and then I also learned when I entered the institution that there's so many people, white people and in particular, wanting to be exactly like me or exactly like my friends. And I started to pick this up my senior year of high school and then going into college, that there are people that will literally change and alter their entire appearance to look like me. They will pay thousands of dollars to look like me and then also shit on me for it. So like, it was a weird relationship to have to- And profit off of yours. And then profit off, exactly. Like, there's been so many times we're walking on campus and I kid you not, I see blonde, blue-eyed women with beaded earrings and I'm like, I should rip that out. Like, I really should, but I would get arrested. Don't do so, it, white women, don't do it. Don't do it, I will think about ripping your earrings out. But I also don't wanna get arrested, so don't let me get arrested. But it's like learning that white people want what we have so badly, and for what? It's just, uh, I don't know, anyway. But yeah, that lyric alone gave me a lot of confidence in my skin and who I am, in the community that I was raised in, and the culture that I was raised in. And learning to really celebrate that also took a lot of work with gender-based violence because a lot of the trauma that I endured was at the hands of brown men. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot, it was having to learn how to separate what it means to be brown and intersectional and have right. all these identities, even though I've also suffered from these same, from these same people. So right. it evoked a lot of thinking, a lot of experience, a lot of trauma, but at the end of the day, I would not give up any of it. I, very, I stand very proudly in mi cultura, in mi comunidad, and I stand proudly in it, and I'm also willing to hold it accountable. Mm, yes. Mm -hmm. That's what love mm -hmm. means, right? That you're willing to hold something accountable. Yeah. You're willing to hold a person accountable. That's what yeah. love is. Accountable. I don't love you. I'll let you fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let somebody else take care of that. <laughs> yeah, for the longest time, I either, for the first chunk of me being here, I either didn't recognize my blackness, and then when I started recognizing it, I just kept pushing myself closer to whiteness. I always make jokes that I sound like a valley girl. And so when I was younger, people would, be, would just be like, oh, you sound really white for a black girl and say all of these things. And so because I lived in a predominantly white area, I was surrounded by white people. I was surrounded by white people constantly pushing me, forcing me towards whiteness. I just inherently like rejected my blackness, even if it wasn't conscious. And it really took a long time. It wasn't until I moved here to Tucson when I started seeing myself as a person 
identifying with my blackness and then also recognizing whiteness as violence. Yeah. It really took me moving here and again the work of black and brown femmes if it wasn't for like my educators, my mentors, if it wasn't for some of the texts that I've been able to read. I didn't take a lot of like GW uh, gender and women studies classes but from the times that I did from the conversations I had from joining force, meeting dope ass people, Kim Dominguez. <laughs> Name drop. But it's like being able to actually learn how to fit into my own skin felt super great and super powerful. And I'm finally glad to be able to say I don't want to be anything but black. I don't want to be anything but an African person. I don't want those things to be taken away from me just because of the way that I talk, the way my behaviors are. And like just because I had to, you know, develop like a valley girl accent in order for me to fit in better with my peers doesn't also mean that like, I'm still not black and doesn't mean these behaviors that I've had to like use as survival take away my blackness necessarily. It's just now they're kind of a weird part of me, my scene phase, <laughs> which I'm gonna reclaim that is not a white thing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Emotus is not for the whites anymore. But yes, now relating to that lyric, if black is wrong, then I really don't wanna be right anymore because I'm like, I am who I am, I accept it. I am perfect the way I was made in the image of the goddess oh, yeah. <laughs> in the oh, yeah, and being able to kind of like even speaking on astrology being able to flesh out kind of those leo traits finding it in all of black history month i didn't really tell people that it was like kind of intentional but i had my hair out completely and sure the last week i've had a beanie on every day but i had my hair out i learned how to do my hair i learned how to take care of my hair and i think like, having this month where i was able to do all of that mm -hmm. and figure it all out yeah i think really kind of helped recenter myself again in my blackness and it's just this journey i'm constantly going on where i'm constantly checking my internalized anti-blackness constantly seeing it around me not always knowing when and how to call it out seeing it and then freezing so many different things that happen but i can safely say that consciously I'm absolutely here for who I am. I love my blackness. Mm -hmm. I love my skin. I love how dark it is and rich it is. Mm -hmm. And I just love being <laughs> these things. And yeah. yeah. Well, thank you both for being so vulnerable and so honest. I think this made the conversation really rich. So I thank you both. And hopefully you can be back on the podcast in the future. <laughs> thank you, everybody.